Hello, I'm Elaine Chu, and this is a keynote for the A-Star Scientific Conference. The title of this talk is Relativizing the Ground Truth Paradigm, Lessons Learned in Music. Today, we are surrounded by big data. Big data is a subject of television shows on the BBC. This particular example here features police in Los Angeles trying to predict crime before it happens, and a London trader who believes he has found the secret of making billions with mathematics. The New York Times trumpets the opportunities open to those fascinated by numbers and data as companies snap up employees who can help make sense of the explosion of data to guide decisions and lift sales. The world of digital music is not far behind in this data race. Companies such as Pandora, Last.fm, Shazam, and Echonest are seeking new ways to make sense of music data, to categorize them, and to make sound recommendations. Much of this machinery is powered by statistical methods, statistical methods such as machine learning. Often, machine learning requires supervised training and the supervised training requires ground truth, that is to say, objective data and true answers. The purpose of this talk is to probe how ground truth, such objective data and true answers, figure in the subjective world of musical and perhaps human experiences. Before I delve into specific examples of complexity in music, I would like to first say a few words about myself Although uh, my training has been in operations research, music plays an important part in my professional life as well. Although born in the United States, I grew up in Singapore, the music of the region continues to influence my projects, including Doubles with composer Peter Child. Here's an example of one of the pieces from Doubles. on, I was trained as a pianist and was fortunate to have been a participant in the first major competition in the region and to have been selected as a finalist to perform with the Singapore Symphony Orchestra. Later on, a field study to Beijing resulted in the creation of a concert juxtaposing Chinese and French music that I performed at the Singapore Embassy in Washington, D.C. That further led to a second appearance with the Singapore Symphony Orchestra for the President's Charity Concert. It is thus with a musician's perspective that I view much of the research in digital music. As an aside, I am one of the main organizers of the upcoming Mathemusical Conversations Workshop, which will consist of six plenary sessions and five concerts jointly hosted by the Institute for Mathematical Sciences and the Yong Siu To Conservatory of Music at the National University of Singapore. My initiation into mathematical and computational modeling of music was through the modeling of tonality. Not surprisingly, we shall begin with an example on tonality. Tonality is a fundamental concept in almost all of the music that we hear. It is the organizing principle, the context through which we hear all the other tones in the music. 
I shall show with a simple example that almost anyone can hear the tonality or key of a melody. I'm going to play a little bit from Happy Birthday. And when I stop, I would like you to think about whether or not the melody has ended or could end at that point. like for it to resolve to now that note that we want to hear as the resolution to the melody is the key or tonal center of the melody many researchers have attempted to model this system of relations that is tonality I will first describe a model of tonality that I have created based on the harmonic network. The harmonic network, pictured here, is a special arrangement of musical tones such that neighboring tones are closely related one to another in musical space. For example, C and G are related approximately by a 2 to 3 frequency ratio, and so are G and D, and so on. If you stare long enough at this grid, you will see that the letters repeat themselves. D is here, and it's here again. If we roll up the sheet of paper so that the two Ds line up one on top of the other, like this, we will arrive at the helical representation on the right that is the outermost helix of the spiral array. The nice thing about the helical form is that we can now play around with the interior space that is now outlined by the helix. And in this interior space, we have things such as triads, a chord consisting of three notes, and the next chord up there, and the next chord, and the next chord. And all these chords can be represented by a point that's at the center of the triangle in the interior of the helix. And these points themselves outline an inner helix that forms all the major triads. Three adjacent triads uniquely define all the pitches of a key. And if we cycle through all of the triads as we make our way up the helix, the, this is what we get. And again, we have a sequence of triangles, and we can represent them with points in the centers of these triangles. And these points themselves, again, form another inner helix that represent all of the major keys. Minor chords and keys can be defined in a similar fashion. Now, with a model for tonality, we can start doing interesting things like key finding. Suppose we would like to find the key of this melody. This is a shaker melody from Appalachian Springs. And when we hear the first tone, it's mapped to the spiral array. And when the second tone appears, it's also mapped to the spiral array, but we generate the center of gravity of the two tones heard so far. And we proceed as follows. 
and fast forward. And voila, here we are. And at this point, we would like to know what is the key. So we look for the closest key representation. And there we go. That is the closest key, and that would give us the identity of the key of the melody. Now let's consider the melody's distance to a few competing keys. In this case, F major, C major, F minor, and C minor. In the first part of the melody, it's clear that F major is the closest key. the second part, C major becomes a competing close key, although F major is still closest. And finally, in the last bit, again we have F major as the closest key. When I first came up with this key finding algorithm, I was very pleased with myself, and I presented it to a committee of examiners who were not quite as pleased with just the algorithm. They wanted to see some evaluations against ground truth. Luckily for me, Carol Crumhansel had in 1990 published a book in which she and Mark Schmuckler had compared their key-finding algorithm, which used probe tones, with an existing method by Longett Higgins and Mark Steedman. I performed the evaluations on the same test set using the same ground truth. So every fugue was written in a particular key and that was taken to be the ground truth for the key of the fugue subject. And in this case, um, I was pleased to find that my algorithm actually found the right key, the ground truth key, in a fewer, in fewer number of steps. The single title key ground truth can sometimes be problematic, as in the case of the F-sharp minor fugue. It begins like this, which could be an F-sharp minor, or could lead towards the key of A, which leads towards B, which leads towards C-sharp, F-sharp minor, in between there are all these nuances and possibilities that are opened up by this very scant beginning. It is not surprising that none of the three algorithms did particularly well on that example. Music theorists are also known to disagree on the key of a tonally ambiguous passage. So how can we provide ground truth that best represents the true key or keys? And how can we do so in an efficient manner, given the plethora of music data? With Tsinghua Chuan and using a data set provided by KUSC, we have devised a way to identify problematic key-finding cases, understanding why they arise, and correcting them when possible. The spiral array model and the key-finding method have been incorporated into the MuseArt software by Alexandre Francois and has been featured in a number of performances. The latest version is available as a free app in the Mac App Store 
As with some other more recent key-finding systems, MuseArt can track the evolving key over time. But creating ground truth for the evolving keys remains an open problem. The spiral array and its associated algorithms were recently published in the Springer's International Series in Operations Research and Management Science book. The second half of this talk deals with the issue of boundaries. Boundaries signify change, the end of a previous state and the beginning of a new one. Understanding, perceiving, and making boundaries is an essential part of our existence. Music provides a beautiful microcosm in which to play with boundaries. Let me first introduce a very basic algorithm for finding boundaries. Suppose a piece of music or some passage of the music consists of a part A that is distinct from a part B. If we look at the pitch set of part A, suppose they are the pitches that are circled in green over here, they define a context that is shown as a green blob in this picture. And suppose part B consists of a pitch set that is distinct from the pitch set of part A, and they form um, a set as shown by the pitches circled in yellow over here, and they have a context that is shown by the yellow blob. We can devise a way of quantifying the distance between the two contexts, for example, by using the centers of gravity of these two blobs and measuring the distance between those centers, and that would give us a number that quantifies the distance between the two different contexts. Suppose we draw the notes for generating these contexts from two adjacent windows, and we have a piece of music that is an, in an A-B-A form. So A comes back again at the end of the piece. And in such a case, when we're sliding the two windows across the piece, the distance between the two contexts, um, that distance is maximized when we are at a boundary between A and B or B and A. So for example, as we're sliding across the piece, before we reach the boundary between A and B, the distance is quite low. And when we hit the boundary, the distance peaks. And when we are entirely within part B, then that distance is low. And again, at the boundary between B and back to A, we have another peak in that distance. And when we're away from the boundary entirely in part A again, that distance is again low. And this is how the algorithm works. It looks for these peaks in the distances of these adjacent windows and identifies them to locate the boundaries. Consider this example by Schubert. If we take a look at the first half of the piece and zoom in on this particular boundary where there is a phenomenal key change from F flat major to E major, that is an amazing leap of a huge distance in musical space from F flat to E. But in the space in, of the frequency of musical tones, there's hardly any change at all. In fact, there's no change. They, these are just simply different spellings of the same notes. And the first chord is this, and the second chord is also this, but the context 
completely changes because of the way the composer has spelled the notes. And this is borne out in the results of the boundary calculations using two different window parameters. Both graphs, calculated from the notes in the score, show highly significant peaks at this point of contextual change. If we had an algorithm that simply measured contextual change from frequency information, it would register no change at this point. So is there a change or is there not? An analogy would be that of words that sound identical but have entirely different meanings put side by side in spoken language. So the sound, the acoustic properties may stay the same, but the meaning has changed entirely. The change in spelling in the Schubert piece indicates to the performer that there is a boundary and that they should vary perhaps the timbre or the dynamics of their playing. Not only do composers indicate boundaries, performers too can indicate boundaries through the way they vary the dynamics, the tempo, or the timbre. In the next section, we shall look at some examples of performed boundaries. The first example comes from the domain of spoken language. And this is an example that has been used by Julia Hirschberg and which I'm borrowing. In this example, the words of the sentence do not change. The only thing that changes is the placement of the boundary. Here we go. John doesn't drink because he's unhappy. John doesn't drink because he's unhappy. So in the first instance, John doesn't indulge in drinking because he's unhappy. In the second one, John doesn't drink because he's too sad to be drinking. Moving on to an analogous example in music, we consider the iconic and wildly divergent recordings of the Goldberg Variations by Glenn Gould. This is a performance by the young Glenn Gould in 1955. In this performance, there is a simple grouping structure indicated by the way he stresses notes in his playing. And I have indicated the grouping with color blobs. The 1981 Glenn Gould is more thoughtful and deliberate in his choices. You will see in the grouping structures indicated that there are asymmetrical accent structures. Also, the right hand and the left hand do not have perfectly aligned grouping structures. In fact, they overlap one with another, and this interleaving of groupings is actually quite difficult to execute. This divergence in grouping structure can also be observed in performances of Bach's sonata for solo violin. In this case, groups are not indicated by accents, but rather by the shaping of dynamics over time. We're going to zoom into the fourth phrase of the piece. In Milstein's performance, he forms one long asymmetric arc.
in Heifetz's performance, instead of forming one long arc, he subdivides the phrase into three subphrases. In another example, we consider the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven as performed by three different pianists, Berenboim, Polini, and Schnabel. Here, we're looking at the tempo graphs of the three pianists, um, rather than dynamics or accent structures. And here, the tempi are shown to indicate the grouping structures in the piece. This is a plot of only Schnabel's performance. Overlaid onto it are the color codes that indicate changes in the tonal context. We see that through a series of hierarchical arcs, Schnabel has chosen to highlight, to reinforce the first major boundary, actually the first major key change boundary in the piece. Let us now hear what that sounds like. Here we are, the first cadence. And second cadence, first major arrival. We have seen so far how structure can be indicated through accents, dynamics, and tempi. We also have seen that there are many choices for the structures that we choose, we could choose to indicate, or the composer could choose to indicate in the score. In the next section, we're going to look at examples of divergence in perceived structure. The backdrop to this next section is the Mimi project. Mimi is a human machine improvisation system that can learn from user input and generate recombinations of this user input. Mimi resulted from a collaboration amongst Alexandre Francois, Dennis Thurmond, Isaac Schenkler, and myself. Before we move on to a video of Isaac performing with Mimi, we need to first have a quick orientation to Mimi's interface. In Mimi's interface, different pitches are color-coded so that different pitch classes have different colors, but pitches in the same pitch class would have the same color. Mimi has a memory, shown in the lower screen. As the user populates Mimi's memory with musical ideas, you will see the material inside the memory grow. Finally, the user can control a few parameters, such as volume, fade in and fade out, as well as Mimi's recombination rate. Now we move on to Mimi's concert debut with Isaac Schenkler. 
In the video, you will see annotations of Isaac's thoughts as well as Mimi's actions. Mimi is learning, Isaac saying, I begin playing, and Mimi begins learning from it. Mimi is now not only learning, it's planning material. Isaac says, Mimi begins planning what to play. The notes are visible at the screen's right edge. Mimi is now not only learning, planning, but also playing. Mimi begins to play. I play a lower voice in counterpoint with Mimi. Mimi starts playing the lower voice, so I move to a higher register. Mimi starts playing in a higher register. I play ominous octaves in the bass. Mimi returns to the first idea. I play bell-like octaves in a high register. By now, I think Mimi has enough ideas in its memory and I stop Mimi from learning anymore. I set Mimi to start learning again, and I play a new, more elaborate idea. Mimi picks up the elaborate idea, I play a descending voice against it. Suddenly, I introduce a new chorale-like idea. I set Mimi to stop playing. Stop learning, clear its memory. I set Mimi to start learning the new chorale-like idea. Mimi begins playing along with a chorale-like idea. Mimi's memory is populated again, so I set Mimi to stop learning. I clear Mimi's memory, but Isaac doesn't catch the last bit of that chord. So you see a chunk down there that's coming back to haunt him, scrolling in from the right. What's he going to do with that? He makes these chords go up to it and then continues with the pointillistic idea. One might ask, could there be form and structure to such free improvisation? Isaac's annotations collected here indicate that there is evidence that form does emerge and higher level structure as well in, the, in such performances, both for the improviser and performer 
as well as for the listener. In an experiment, Isaac, the performer, and Jordan, an intelligent listener, both annotated the structure or what they perceived to be the structure of three improvisations with Mimi. We can see that while there are some there is some degree of agreement between the two, there are also some interesting differences in their structural analyses. Let us now focus on the very beginning of Isaac's and Jordan's analyses of the third performance. It turns out the differences in analyses can be explained by the metrical groupings each listener assigned to the notes that they heard. When conceptualized as straight eighth notes, it is possible to break the music into two parts as shown in the top figure um, at the point where the, the lower boom, 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 boom comes in. And however, when the notes are conceptualized as triplets, it is not possible to introduce a break at that point because there's a triplet that cuts across that boundary. By studying the points of disagreement, the reasons for divergent analyses were identified as follows. Attention to different musical features. Sometimes musical features can change at different points in time, and depending on which feature is most salient to the listener, that could determine where they place the boundaries in their structural analyses. Ontological commitments in opening moments. Depending on what the listener calls an A or a B, that's going to determine the rest of the analyses. What are what's considered a variant of idea A and what's considered a variant of idea B. Difference in information. In this case, the two listeners had very different states of information. One was the performer and was the person who created the pieces that were being analyzed. The performer also had information about Mimi's states, which influenced his analyses of the pieces. Difference in expectation. Annotator 2 had an expectation that sections from the same hierarchical level would be approximately the same length. Annotator 1 did not have such expectations, and these expectations influenced the way in which they performed their analyses. We have established thus far that a single answer for the structure of a piece of music may be far from representative of the wealth of structural choices. And any system for predicting structure of a piece of music would do well to incorporate models of attention and expectation. In some recent work, we have attempted to account for attention in the modeling of structure analyses. Here we see an analysis of the Beatles' yellow submarine, shown as the square on the left. Suppose that the structure based on timbre features, harmony features, rhythm features, loudness features, and tempo features are as follows. 
and we would like to find a way to reconstruct the analyses shown in the top left as a sum of the analyses um, shown in the five smaller grids. This is done through decomposing the matrices and finding the best fit between the estimated matrix and the target matrix through quadratic optimization. In conclusion, this talk has provided some supporting evidence for the need to relativize the ground truth paradigm. For example, in music processing, there can be multiple interpretations of key and other musical structures. Thus, it is important to carefully qualify ground truth when applying it to complex data.